and I immediately came off the, the radio, picked up my phone, phoned my CEO and said, close the halls to all visitors that day. All right. Literally, it was, I knew this was a serious situation. Hi, I'm Toby Ellie Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines a light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff, and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021 and most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this week's Tea with Toby, I'm joined by Chairman of Dalhousie Care Group, Scotland's largest independent care provider, Tony Banks. Tony, an army veteran, founded Dalhousie in the early 90s, and since then, he has grown Dalhousie from a single care home to 27 across Scotland. I wanted to know how Dalhousie responded to the pandemic what Tony's take on the government's guidance was and what he believed were the real obstacles for the care sector going forward. But first, I wanted to learn how he came to a career in care. Tony, welcome to the show. Morning, Toby. Let's jump straight in. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and also your journey into the care sector? Yeah, sure. Um, I've always worked, so I've worked since I was the age of 11. Uh, I come from a normal working class background. We weren't poor, but we weren't rich either. Um, so I knew that to um, get the nicer things in life that I had to, to uh, go out and earn some extra cash. I left school. Uh, my father was very much an educationalist and uh, he, he wanted me to, my eldest brother was a lawyer and my sister had done a degree in nursing and my father wanted, you know, wanted me to be an accountant. So I left school to do accountancy and live on a student's grant. Uh, and whilst I was at university, I uh, saw an advert for parachuting in the paper and you could earn money parachuting. Um, naively, I didn't realise it was the Territorial Army, <clears throat> but I went along anyway and um, I got embroiled in the Territorial Army and I started to learn how to parachute. And it got to the stage where I was uh, enjoying the TA more than I was enjoying the BA. And um, I was coming back from exercises and parachute and doing all these exciting things with young guys and camaraderie and decided that um, being an accountant was not for me. So much to my parents' disgust, um, I left my university um, course and I went and joined the regular army. And I remember finishing the training and thinking, I've just trained for a job that I'm never going to do. Uh, little did I know, eight or nine months later, um, the Falklands War was going to kick off and... Um, 
being a paratrooper, going to, going to war on a boat was quite strange because we always thought we'd be going to war on a plane. Um, anyway, I, I, I did the, war, the Falklands War stuff and um, I did various other things in the Army. Um, I'm not, I'm not taking too much time up talking about that. I then um, decided to leave the Army and I, um, I wanted to become a physiotherapist. Um, and I'd um, applied to um, Queen Margaret's College in Edinburgh to do my degree in physiotherapy. It was uh, accepted. And in the 10-month wait between leaving the army and going to uh, Queen Margaret's College, um, a friend of mine said, look, my wife works for this company. Um, it's quite good money. Why don't you go and have a look at it? And I went to this seminar, and this seminar, outside the, the office, the guys, well, the, the, the Porsche cars, you know, the Mercs, they were all in sharp suits, the, the mobile bricks and that, that these days. We're talking about 1987, 88 now. Um, and, and they said, look, you can earn a grand a month. Now, a grand a month back then for an ex-squad, was quite a lot of money. And, um, you know, I've only got one brain cell. And I thought, well, what do I have to do to do that? And they said, well, make four appointments a day. And even the worst salesman in the world will make a grand a month. So religiously, uh, being, being sort of used to taking orders, I thought, I'll do that. And um, I did do it. And I did it religiously. And I started earning four and five grand a month. And I was top six salesman out of 700. And then, unfortunately, as most companies do, when you become a, when you're a good sales guy, they promote you to sales management. And there's a big difference between sales and sales management. And they asked me to start uh, opening offices around the country for them. And it ended up that I was commuting four hours a day to, uh, to open a branch for them in, in South London, and then um, having to go and work at night. And I was want to bring up, uh, we want to start a family. I thought, no, this is not for me. So I spoke to my wife and uh, we decided that we would um, move and we could have went back to her parents, uh, where her parents live, which was sort of the Shropshire Welsh border, or back up to Scotland. And she she was happy to come to Scotland because she knew Scotland, she had friends up here. And um, we always knew we wanted to do something for herself. And that's, uh, she was a nurse. Uh, I understood finance. I understood property. Um, I got a job in the oil rigs working as a medic. That gave me two weeks on and two weeks off to investigate everything and do the research. Mm. Uh, and eventually, um, we'd made enough money on our house, uh, our house sale in the south of England, uh, luckily just before a crash at that time. Uh, her father had sold his business and he gave us a little bit of cash and that enabled us to um, look at starting our own care home. And um, we did that. And we, we very much started it with the, the intention of it being a family business. Uh, and, and really, it was nothing, uh, you know, we, we converted an old Victorian house, we lived in the attic, and we had no intention of growing it into um, a really large business. It was something that would just be something that we could run as a family, etc., etc. Um, unfortunately, my ambition um, outstripped my ex-wife now because I um, realised I was getting bored. And Tory Banks being bored is a very dangerous situation. So I wanted to expand the business. She didn't, and um, we, we, we went our separate ways, and I bought her out of the, the business, and uh, I then went on to, to build Balhousie Care Group to uh, where it is now. And, um, you know, th 30 years later, and, uh, you know, I think I should get a medal for, for, for surviving for 30 years in the care industry. Um, you know, Balhousie Care Group has, has, has been built into one of Scotland's uh, largest uh, care groups. It's, it's very successful. The brand is strong. Uh, I like to think that we have done a good job over those 30 years and not only delivering care, but um, delivering jobs and uh, prosperity, economic prosperity to the communities that we serve. Uh, I believe that care homes do serve communities and that's very important. Wow, that's a huge background. There's so much to sink into there. So I know you're a man that likes to look forward, but if you will, just 
come back to me, come back with me for a little bit. So I want to rewind back until December of 2019. Um, you know, you're the chairman of a successful care home group. What was going on in the company and what was going on in the care sector? Like what was on the agenda back then, 2019? So back in the autumn of 2019, I had to make some decisions. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 59. Um, now, I was 58 then. I'd been in care for 28, 28 years. And the company needed to have a new strategy, I thought, going forward for the next five to 10 years. You know, um, we had uh, uh, brought on a new CEO and we were looking at strategy about what we did with the company and what areas do we want to grow into, maybe divest ourselves of some of our, of our businesses. And um, that was a real strategic time within the business. And we were looking at the plan for the next, uh, as I say, five to 10 years. Uh, and, you know, we, I often think 10 years is too far, but we had a five-year strategy that would lead into a 10-year uh, plan. So at that time, it was all about uh, planning. And the new CEO, I, I had conversations about me, wanted to, to do a little bit less within the business and concentrate on some of my other business interests and have a bit more uh, time to myself. So you know, that that was the first uh, year that I think I had two or three skiing holidays booked, and then obviously we we, we got into two thousand and twenty, and this thing COVID started to raise its head. You know, we'd seen what was happening in China, but we weren't really paying any much attention to it because it was China. You know, China's another planet to, to most people. You know, uh, and and then as we got from January into February, I, I went skiing in January, February it started to get really interesting because it was starting to creep into Europe. We start to see what was happening in northern Italy. Uh, and then when we got into March, things become really interesting. Um, I had um, a skiing holiday booked in Austria for the last two weeks in March. And it also, um, for the first time ever, uh, been invited to go to Cheltenham to the horse racing. So I was on the train to uh, Cheltenham and uh, I was sitting listening to the news on, on my headset and uh, I kept my eye on the, the, what was happening with, with COVID, but I wasn't really sure where things were going, apart from <clears throat> I'd now moved from Italy to Spain. And then the WHO uh, announced, whilst I was on the train, that it was a global pandemic. And I immediately came off the, the radio, picked up my phone, phoned my CEO and said, close the homes to all visitors all right. that day. Literally, it was, I knew this was a serious situation. You know, the WHO announced, you do not, you know, they're not going to announce a global pandemic lightly. And um, obviously, been having watched what's happening in Spain and Italy, I thought you know things need to, 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 to things need to tighten up here. And <clears throat> I went to Cheltenham, and I remember being at Cheltenham, thinking this is madness. There's seventy thousand people there, you know, um, and they had they had sanitising hand sanitising stations and things like that. But that was about it. Nobody with masks on, no social distancing. And um, <clears throat> obviously, I got back on the train and went back up to, came back to Scotland. Did you close the homes before the the lockdowns? So, yeah, so we, so I made the decision to close the homes 12 days before um, the UK government, Scottish government, decided to, to lock down. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I knew, just because of what I'd been reading and what I'd been watching on telly, that this 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 was a very infectious disease. Mm. And, and, and your care homes, the client group that we look after, they were going to be vulnerable because they're elderly and they have usually have uh, comorbidities. They have other things going on uh, as part of just being old. Um, so that was a very tough, that was a difficult decision, but we, we stopped all non-essential visits to care homes. Um, and and that, was, that was hard. And, uh, and 
was it the right decision? Yes, I think it was the right decision. Were there some other things that we could have done at that time? Did we make some mistakes? Yes, I think we did. What? What? Like what? What were some of the mistakes and some of the things you? So could we stopped. Done? We stopped. We, we stopped all visits, and we and and that also meant end of life visits. Mm. Uh, and in hindsight, that was wrong. Yeah, uh, we should have made provision for people. We know when people are going to die within twenty four hours. You know, we should have made provision for relatives to get in. Uh, then, so we reversed that decision. Um, but you know, that, I would say that was a mistake. Um, also, um, we should have wore face masks from the day we locked the homes down. A friend of mine has a group of homes in the Midlands and he, he during the first wave, he immediately, uh, when they, they announced to lock, lock down the country, he locked his homes, but he, he made his staff um, wear a face mask and he didn't have any cases during the first wave. Oh, right. Unfortunately, he's had some, he has some cases now, but he didn't through the first wave. So there were two major mistakes that I would say that um, we made. So let's, let's go along the timeline to around March, when the lockdown was announced, what were some of the biggest concerns from your senior leadership team and also from the families at the time that you were seeing? I've got to say the families, are uh, all in all, uh, throughout the pandemic, the families have been amazing, very supportive. And um, my senior leadership team, um, we were getting requests from the uh, local authorities to, to help the NHS out. Um, because they, they, they obviously, they, they, at that time, still is to protect the NHS. Um, so obviously, we start to see an increase of admissions from hospitals. Uh, on top of your normal community settings, the admissions were in community settings, we had the admissions from hospitals. And um, there was no, uh, it was really seen, you know, sort of your country needs you, that sort of, that, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that was the frustration at the time because, there were requests about testing, the testing of these individuals coming to hospital, and nobody really knew what, what the answer was or what the protocols were, whether people had been tested or not. Uh, and, um, you know, as we know, there were um, a few thousand people discharged from uh, hospitals uh, into, into care homes in Scotland. And, and obviously there was, a, there was a consequence of that, uh, as we all know, which was then to introduce... Uh, the virus into care homes, mm. but but also I, I then became I started looking at government guidance and and remember it was guidance, mm. and I, I made it clear to my senior leadership team that we would plough our own furrow here. You know I found that I found it incredible that we hadn't locked the country down earlier. I found it incredible that we hadn't done anything about travel. Um, you know I used to say to my staff, I don't need a scientific officer or a chief medical officer on my side to tell me what's going on here. I've just watched the TV and I've seen it. I've seen this pandemic pandemic roll through Italy and Spain and, and the consequences of that. So we were getting a guidelines issued by the Scottish government, and they would get issued in the morning. They change by lunchtime, and they change again in the evening. And, and really, you was you know I felt sorry, particularly for man power businesses that maybe didn't have the resource how to handle this, 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 this rapid change. And um, as I said, we, we, um, we came under a bit of criticism at the start for locking the homes down. And then eventually the country got locked down. And I made it very clear that um, we would do what we felt was right for our residents and our staff. And if that was against government guidance, so be it. And that led me into a couple of situations where um, Scottish government and I have, have been engaged in some... Uh, uh, good debates about what should be happening, what shouldn't be happening, and um, uh, the way forward. And I think the NHS, I think the governments, both governments, they did protect the NHS. Mm. 
but it, it was at the expense of care homes, and there's no doubt about that. And I think that one of the saddest things in Scotland, I don't know if you you know this, but but the, the Crown Office is investigating all the deaths in care homes in Scotland. Mm. So the care homes feel, feel a bit like um, we're under the cosh here because we've helped out, we've done our best, and why is it only deaths in care homes that are getting investigated, not deaths in hospitals or deaths in the community setting? So, so the care homes do feel a bit aggrieved about what's happening uh, at the moment. And this, this, this process of investigation was initiated fairly early on uh, by the Scottish government. I, pl- I believe it was a political move. Um, mm. uh, time will tell. I believe it's a political move, and there's a number of reasons I can maybe go to uh, go go into later on why I think that was the case. And that care home is in the uh, constituency of the uh, leader of the SNP in Westminster, and it's also in the constituency of the Scottish Finance Minister at um, in Edinburgh. Now, why that? Ca- so that care home made news, and they basically they reported to the sheriff courts, etc. And um, they want to deregister it and all this sort of stuff. And I believe that was a political move because there had been other homes in Scotland that had had more deaths. And one that springs to mind was one in in, in the west of Scotland, which was a local authority home that didn't get the same press and didn't get the same treatment. And also at the same at the time, they started talking about a national care service for Scotland, and and basically trying to nationalise the care care homes in Scotland. Um, so you then think so we've got a bit of pressure in terms of. Um, investigation by the police. So basically, care homes are bad. Um, we've then got this pressure, this discussion around national care service. Then, then the health minister asked for a, a, a study group to be set up to reform the care home sector. And at the same time, she asked Christie and Co, who are one of our main uh, state agencies, if you like, for better, one of better work, business consultants in our sector, to do evaluation of all the care homes in Scotland. And also, they start to instigate a, a change to the building regulations and standards for care, care homes in Scotland. So there's four or five things all going on at the same time. Some that I believe that Scottish government thought were going under the radar, but they didn't because it's came out in the woodwork now. And all these things were leading to putting pressure on the care homes. And care homes feel really aggrieved that they've been punished for what's happened in the last year not, and, and not rewarded. And the outcome of all these things is yet to be seen. I don't think the building standards um, will come in because I think it's going to be too expensive to build care homes in Scotland. It's be financially unviable to do that. So there'll be new, no new care homes in Scotland. I think a national care service, it's, um, you know, you look at over two billion to nationalise the service. Then to, 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 to all the other things that go like that with that, inter- increased terms and conditions, etc. It's too expensive. The Scottish government can't afford it um, in light of having to pay for a pandemic. So that's never going to happen. The uh, Derek Feeney's report on the care sector in Scotland, um, he was not given enough time to do uh, a, a good job, and it's a whitewash. So that'll never, that won't come up with anything meaningful. Um, so, I th- I, and I don't think the, I'd be very surprised if there's anything comes of the uh, Procurator Fistel, our Crown Service, investigation into the care home deaths. If anything, that might turn 108 degrees on government mm. and on, on, on hospitals. In terms of why did you discharge people without test? You know, what support did you give to care homes at that time? You know, what what what's what where were you remiss and in, in, in your obligations? So so you know there will be a public inquiry, and I think all these things will have to wait for, to a public inquiry. And I don't I, I you know don't get me wrong, I think everybody and I mean everybody has done a, as good as they could do in a pandemic. Everybody's made mistakes, 
Um, it is quite sad when governments have carried out exercises, though, to deal with pandemics. And I don't know if you've heard this. There has been UK government and Scottish government exercises done, tabletop exercises on pan on pandemics happening. And I think it was 2016 there was one carried out. And I can't remember if it was a UK-wide one or a Scottish, only Scottish wide. But one of the, the outcomes of that um, exercise, that care homes would be the most vulnerable part of society. Mm. It, was a flu, it was a flu epidemic. Wow. And they didn't. And they didn't implement any of the findings. They didn't. They knew it was a problem, and they didn't take any any action on that. So there's a lot of questions to be asked, but that's for a later day. I think what we've got to do now is look at how we can how over the last year, I think Balhousie Care and myself have influenced Scottish government, mm. uh, and I think you know, and I'm I'm really glad that Scottish government have listened, uh, and they have listened to what I've had to say, and they have changed direction in a, in a few areas, and they realised that. That you know, from a Tony Banks perspective or a Balhousie perspective, we're here to to get solutions and to help with them solutions, not to add to people's problems, but to get solutions to the problems on the ground. And you know, I've got to give credit to the health minister and to our civil servants. Um, they have listened and they, they continue to listen. And um, you know, and I believe that has been some some good has come out of it. But um, you know, we've got a long way to go. I think in this uh, where we are. Uh, I don't think the vaccine is not the panacea to all our problems, and I, I believe we have a real a, a, a real responsibility to, to let people understand that, that uh, our behaviours need to be maintained with all the social distancing, wearing the masks, good infection control policies, all that stuff needs to, to continue. And I believe, and testing, and testing has been my big, big thing. Mm. Um, we, we, you know, the, the WHO, the, you know, South Korea, all the companies that got it right said from day one, Test, 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 and we didn't do it in the UK. Big, big mistake. I'm actually going to get. I'm going to. I'm, I'm really curious to know your thoughts for the future. Um, I just want to move up the sort of the timeline. What would you say was one of the most challenging periods for yourself, for the company, and for yourself uh, personally during the whole pandemic? The challenge for me is probably one of the most stress stressful. Uh, times I've ever had in, in business. And I've had stressful times in business, problems with the, the banks and all the rest of it that, that most businesses go through in the, the cycle of having a business. But it was very um, stressful because I knew it was going to get worse. I looked at it from the beginning and this is only going to get worse. This is not going to, people were talking, oh, by the summer we'll be able to do this. And, but, and I'm thinking, no, oh, this is here for the long haul. And one of the reasons I knew that, I looked back at previous pandemics, the Spanish flu, you know, 1918 was around for about four years. Um, I look back, Dundee, where I lived, there was a the plague was around then. It was here for about four years, you know. Uh, and I looked at the measures they implemented and, and both those, and it was all social distancing, wearing masks, gowns, even back into the 1600s when we had the plague. So I knew it was going to get, it was only going to get worse. And it was a, and it was a time for true leadership. Uh, and, you know, even though I had a CEO uh, uh, and who we have a fantastic working relationship with, uh, who I have fantastic working relationship, it was important that I got back in the trenches mm -hmm. and to steer the ship and to give people clear direction and to give people encouragement and also belief that they believe in the leadership. Um, because, you know, a lot of people have not believed in the leadership of government. So as a business owner and, I, and as, as the, you know, the chairman of Bellhousey Care, you know, my name is very synonymous with Bellhousey Care. So it was important that I spoke up uh, when I thought we had to speak up to protect my employees uh, and to protect our residents. And I and that's why I said I've engaged with Scottish Government on several occasions and uh, and uh, others to ensure that they, they listened to what we're saying. And, and, and I know, 
you know, a lot of, along the way that um, people might have been upset with what I've had to say. Uh, I was very upset with the media at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, and um, particularly our local media, uh, um, I would not give them any information. How many, they want to know how many deaths, how many how many of your staff have got it, where's the outbreaks? And I wouldn't give them the information. Now, they felt that as a company, we weren't being transparent, we had something to hide. I didn't want to give them any information because I had no information apart from we had outbreaks and we had deaths. I want to build up data to see what was actually happening. So I had meaningful data to tell me what was actually happening in the care homes and where we had outbreaks, looking at why we had outbreaks in those homes as opposed to other homes. And how did we handle the outbreaks and what could we learn from those outbreaks? So there's a big learning curve for us there. And I didn't think the media frenzy was helping the public, um, the, the public in their understanding of the disease. And I think it was it was a bit of it was headlines, it was headlines, it was grabbing headlines, and people were dying, and people were under stress. Our staff were under extreme stress. Um, you know, they, they they and 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 they've been amazing. The staff have been amazing, and everybody handles fear in a different way. And uh, you know, some people uh, within our workforce were extremely frightened. Um, some of our workforce had to shield because of the underlying conditions. So there was a lot going on at that time, and the media. Rather than than um, act responsibly, I believe acted irresponsibly in whipping up a, a frenzy of fear and of uh, investigation and pointing the finger at care homes mm. when uh, it wasn't the care homes' fault at that time. And subsequently, I think people have, have started to realise that. Yeah, the, you know, the, the people getting the, the, uh, discharged from hospital without tests and effective measures being put in place. Tony is obviously someone who comes into his own in adversity. Coming up, Tony and I discuss why retention is a major problem in care. Tony gives his thoughts on the media's coverage of care in the last year. And we hear how Bauhausi have changed forever from COVID. But first, I wondered how Tony's time in the military has groomed him to manage well in a crisis. How do you think your time in the military prepared you for this pandemic. One of my staff said to me, he said, Tony, this is when you're at your best. When there's a when there's a real crisis or there's real pressure on the business, this is when you really come to the fore. And I think, as like I said earlier on, it's when I, I decided that they needed the captain back at the helm. You mm. know? Um, I think the military, because you're used to working under pressure, you're taught to, you're very, you're taught uh, very uh, strict methods on how you should operate under certain circumstances. You can, very quickly assess the situation and get to a solution. You can get rid of the noise because there's a lot of noise going on during the pandemic, you know, like I'm saying about the newspapers and the media and all this stuff. You have to try and get rid of that noise and focus on what the real issues are and what you have to deal with, uh, what you have to deal with and how you're going to deal with that to get to get a satisfactory outcome. And that's, that's the whole thing that people have to understand through this, that it's about getting the best outcome we could, we could with the resources we had and in the situation that we, we were in. Now, you know, perfect is the enemy of good enough. And sometimes good enough will do during a situation. Um, you know, perfect, aiming for perfection was not going to happen when you have depleted resources, you're learning all you're learning on the job, you're getting conflicting guidance, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you you touched on the the care staff. Um so I feel that you know, care has been in the media more in the last year than it probably has over the last 10 years. And it's really has brought a light, um, a light to the heroes who are the care staff. 
What's your thoughts on the Clap for Carers initiative? Well, it started off with the Clap for NHS, didn't it? Mm. It wasn't really for carers. Yeah. It was for the NHS. And then it changed. It changed to, to, to involve social care. Social care has always been the, the poor little sister of the NHS. Social care has always been underfunded. Um, there's been a numerous cost of care studies being done. And they always come out saying that the, 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 the social care is underfunded. So you're quite right. Social care has never been in the limelight as much as it has been. And I think there is a real, uh, a real support from the general public. I think if you know Boris Johnson has a huge majority of Westminster said and putting everybody's taxes up by two p in the pound, and all that money is going to care. I don't think anybody would object. Mm. However, we, we know there's a lot more to be paid for than just care after this pandemic. But th that is the the major problem. If if they really the social care is always on a general election in the manifestos, and then it gets lost in the conversation. And it's about the sector and, and, and the leaders within the sector um, to keep it at the forefront of the politicians' mind and not let them forget that they have to address the care, so the, the social care issue. And, and it boils down to funding. I mean, I, I will say that. It's all down to funding. Nationalising a care service is not going to fix the problem. You know, we all know the NHS does a great job. We also know that the NHS is highly inefficient. Mm. You know, so... so, so you know, what we need to do is address the real problems. And the real problem in the care sector is funding. And that funding addresses things like retention in the sector, about training, about giving people a true career path in care, which I believe there is. You know, you as a nurse, you can, you can have uh, fast-tracked promotion in the care sector faster than you would in the NHS, and just as rewarding. Because remember, care, we often talk about just the elderly, but care is a huge range of care services that the, the private care sector and, and the voluntary sector provide in the UK. Um, you know, it's not just the elderly. Um, there's all the specialist care that goes on and children and all this other stuff, other things. So so it's, it's, it's underfunding is a problem. And until they address that, they will not they will not address any of the other issues. Um, and and that, that is the, the, the underlying problem. They have to address the funding issues. And with those current challenges in terms of financials, how do you think that will impact the quality of care? What, what, what impacts the quality of care, in my eyes, is the turnover of staff. The turnover in the sector is over 30%. That's a huge turnover. So you're losing all that experience and knowledge or you're not building that experience and knowledge because people are leaving. And then there is not enough training facilities. Now, the, the, the one thing about the pandemic is we, we, we were seeing the, the, the move to digital uh, working has, has increased. The speed of that has increased. So there will be the ability to deliver training through this, this sort of medium. But it needs investment and it needs investment from everybody not just uh, one part of the the the, the, um, the, 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 the coin. So um, to me, they, they have to address the retention issue in the care sector. And that, to me, is a, my logic says, if you improve retention, if you improve the training of the staff, you should improve quality. Mm. See, but build, what people don't buildings don't deliver care. It's people that deliver, deliver care. So you can have a nice shiny new building with a champagne bar and a jacuzzi and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean the care is going to be any better. It will it will touch people's needs or families' needs. Oh, look at this place. It's wonderful. It's got a chandelier. It's got champagne. It doesn't mean the care is any good. The care is delivered by people and will be for a long, long time. We're, 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 it's never going to be delivered by robots. And, but we will use technology a lot more. Don't get me wrong. And there's a place for technology and care. But it's about people. So unless we invest in our people... And we show people there's a real career in care, 
It's not it's not it's not a, a down the food chain in terms of jobs. There's a real career path and, and providers have a have a job to do and and showing individuals as a career path in care. But we need to make it a reward that there's reward a decent reward for staff. Mm. So we're gonna jump back on the timeline, but before we do that, I just want to touch back on something you mentioned a little earlier with the media. Um so with and then also you touched on the baby boomers, they say there's gonna be the biggest shift of wealth with the baby boomers going into retirement. What do you think the next generation of sons and daughters of people that require uh, that require care will be thinking about care homes based on what they've seen on media over the last you know six months? Yeah, and that's a very good point. I think, as I said, I think the media have have uh, not helped the sector promote the sector. If anything, they've done damage to the sector. And it's very much up. To, and, and, you know, give his due. Matt Hancock has twice stood up, once in a, a Downing Street press conference and once in, in, in uh, Parliament, to say that that um, he had 100% um, uh, belief and, and confidence in the care sector and what it does. Uh, unfortunately, our minister in Scotland has not done the same, and I believe she should. Um, but um, I think there is a job on all of us to install confidence in, in the uh, general public that care homes do a fantastic job for communities and they can deliver the needs of um, our, our older folk in general. Mm. So I know you're a man of the future, so we're going to be talking about the future in a bit. Let's hop back on the timeline and fast forward to around, let's say, the back end of last year. Looking back, how has the Bauhausie Group changed? What are some of the technological changes or process changes that you've made off the back of the pandemic? Yeah, so... So we had, we introduced the technology, and, and it's not big deals, but we had things like iPads and everything, so people could communicate using Zoom, mm. you know, FaceTime, all that sort of stuff. Very early in the care homes, um, we also um, I was quite vociferous with Scottish government about testing, increasing the testing in care homes, uh, for for not just PCR, but for the use of lateral flow devices. So we introduced lateral flow device testing in our care homes uh, in a pilot scheme about. A month to six weeks before Scottish what, government. What's lateral flow? So basically, that if you look at the PCR test, yeah. the PCR test is looked at as the gold standard in testing for for coronavirus. Okay. Yeah. Then they have a thing called a lamp test. So that's probably what they call the silver the silver uh, service. And then a lateral flow device testing is basically it's a quick a rapid result. So within twenty minutes you'll get a result. Okay. So a swab taken and it's put into a little cassette thing. You'll get a result very very quickly. Mm. Now. There is, a, there is discussion about how accurate these tests are, um, but what we found, and in, 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 since we've been using them since October, is that they, they are fairly off. They are, the accuracy is good. Mm. And as I say, perfect perfect is the enemy good enough. And if we and we, have, we are pick, picking up people who are asymptomatic. Mm. So if we had waited to weekly PCR testing, then it could be a week, these people could be operating within the care home. So they have helped. So and I said to give Scottish government their, 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 their um, due, they listened and they reduced. And we're working on them. There's some issues in terms of the administering of the tests and the administering of the results and all that. And we're working. Uh, I would like. To, I'm glad to say with Scottish government on some solutions that we've devised to that they could perhaps implement or give to the sector within Scotland. So one of the things that I was very uh, we've had to do is, is keep spirits up, the morale up of our of our staff. So we've had a number of initiatives in terms of uh, being able to do that. 
from goodie bags being delivered to staff um, for recognition in, in monthly or monthly and weekly magazines. Um, we've um, made sure that health and mental well-being that there's there's access for our staff to everything um, that they need there. Um, I um, decided to get a commemorative coin mm. uh, minted for all our staff. A bit like I don't like to say, but a bit like a war medal, you know, yeah. because they've been through a campaign. Yeah, and I wanted them. To, I wanted them to say, look, don't just think this is something. This is a historical event. This will be talked about for years to come. Your grandkids will look at pictures and say, why was everybody wearing masks in that photograph? So we give our staff a, a, a coin, a certificate that they could frame, and they can they can put on their wall if they so wish. Or but put it don't as it don't throw it in a drawer at the back of the drawer. Really recognise the, the contribution you've made to society during this uh, pandemic. And they were very well received. So not everything's a monetary reward. We know that people you know, do all these different surveys. That money's fourth on the line why people go to work. Mm. There's a lot of three other reasons, good reasons why why people work and why they stay in the job that they're doing. So it's very important, I felt, to keep try and keep morale up as much as we can. We uh, a week into the pandemic, we set up a a, a, um, a fund to give interest free loans to our staff because we knew that we knew that they um, would be hit financially if if partners were off sick or be lost their jobs. So we we put in a, 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 a few hundred thousand pounds in a fund to allow our staff to to, to get twelve month interest free loans. And and people have taken that up, which is which is great. Uh, and I think the other thing that I've done is to make sure that people kept it real and realised that this wasn't going away. I didn't I didn't want to burst people's balloons, but I also you know looking at and having having done a lot of research and did a a lot of work around the testing side of the business, not just in Balhousie care around the whole of the whole testing around the industry, talking to industry leaders, realised that, that this was not going to go away for a long time. So when the vaccine was announced, I thought that was the most dangerous time in the whole pandemic. Oh, yeah. So I made sure our leadership team, um, I said, this is when we need to really, really uh, enforce within our homes the good practices and policies and procedures about infection control. I said, it's now when when they they, they announced that they'd found the vaccine. I said, but more more importantly, once we start getting the vaccine, because people... People's behaviours will change, and they and because they, they wouldn't have the full understanding of what the vaccine was. Mm. Um, people think they've got a vaccine and that makes them infallible and, and they're bulletproof, and it doesn't. So we very very quickly got the message out to our staff that all the vaccine meant was that if you did get the disease, it should not uh, affect you as much as if you didn't have the vaccine. You should not become as ill. It didn't mean that you couldn't transmit it. And we don't know how long the immunity, it gives you immunity for. I mean, they're talking about five months, but they still don't know. So there's still a lot of unknowns. So we've had to make sure the behaviours of our staff uh, have been maintained, if not even even more vigorous than they were before. So we didn't let the, 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 them slip into, into a false sense of security. So I would say that that, that that period up to December, from about October to December, we were very keen to ensure that... Um, our staff understood this. So let's take it to now. We're recording this in January of 2021. We're in another national lockdown. What needs to be done differently this time around to protect the care sector, the staff and the, the people that are being cared for? I think I think in the main, um, we, we've, we've got there to a certain extent. We've got increased testing of staff. We've got, in, we've got testing of visitors when that, get, when that happens. 
Um, I think we've got the rollout of the vaccine. Um, so all these things put together will, should make the care home safer. But they still don't, not, they still don't stop the disease coming in. I, my glass is usually half full, okay? So so God said to, you know, I often think that not only did we get the pandemic, I got a frozen shoulder last July. Mm. And then my football team collapsed this season as well. So, <laughs> so I've, had, I've had a treble whammy, yes. if you like. So, but my point is, it's been mentally challenging for everybody. And I like to think I'm quite a resilient chap. And I like to think that I'm quite, I say, happy-go-lucky in my glass half full. But there's been times during this pandemic, even I've, I felt it. Let's let's and touch. Looked, let's touch on that because looked, the the general public don't see what really goes on. They only see what the media show show them. What has been some of the really devastating moments in the Falklands? You know, I, I, mental health is something that I've um, always been interested in because uh, post traumatic stress disorder really was never talked about before. And the Falklands it came to fore, and, and the military started to understand it a lot better. And I think the general public now understand it a lot better. And and it, and it comes about if you're working under extreme pressure and seeing a lot of death around you, that has a toll on your mental health. And where I was, I think the things that, that really upset me, and I'm worried, I mean emotionally, was I'd seen some of our care homes and we had outbreaks. So in the first wave, we, we'd had 25 deaths. Three of those were three of those were without tests. Twenty-two were with tests, but twenty-one of them were in two settings. So one home, I think, one home had thirteen or fourteen. They had six or seven deaths. Now, in a care home of forty people, to have 13, 13 or fourteen deaths within a ten-day period, it's never been seen. You, if they see a, if they see a death a month, that might be or, or two deaths a month. But in a very so, uh, and that was devastating for our staff. Because remember what I said earlier on, these were the, they feel like family. And they, they, that's, that, that staff group, these staff groups particularly needed a lot of support and to, be, and, to, and to let them know it wasn't their fault. Because we knew at that time that it was asymptomatic staff that were bringing the disease into the care homes because the testing regime was not uh, at the, the level it was then. So, so that was extremely hard. And that's when I say, when I take decisions to lock the homes down, and some family members, and, not, and I say very few, but some do get upset about it. They're not understanding that we felt the pain of people dying. They're only thinking about their loved one and their and, and, and their, that, their loved one's well-being, which is understandable. But we're trying to think about thousands of people's well-being. So I think that's been the hardest thing to take. And, you know, when I've been in some discussions with uh, Scottish government, and uh, I, I think in one discussion I brought this up, and I was really quite upset with them. And I said, and I actually said to them, you don't, you don't understand what it feels like. How many, how many of you have mm. been in a setting where there's been 14 deaths in two weeks? Um, none of them. I said, so let's please listen to what I'm saying. And it's not, and it's that, and that's that's what I'm, what I'm saying. That the, the respect of for the NHS workers, for everybody, for all the people that have kept things going, but for those that have, have been at the, the sharp end, and I don't, you know, really, you know. In, in, in the, at the coalface, seeing death, seeing people um, deteriorate very quickly uh, and dying. That's, that's, that's the impact of this disease. So finally, Tony, I could speak to you all day, by the way. <laughs> I've got my last question for you. So we've got quite a wide listenership, but I want to aim this question specifically uh, for the people who are maybe in the first year or five years of running their uh, care provider business. From a leadership perspective, what's can you talk to those people in terms of something that they should be 
thinking about this is probably the first crisis they faced. Um, just a couple of a couple of uh, gems for them. Yeah, I think firstly, surviving a crisis, you should always look in the mirror and say well, you've done well. Because for any business, and not just get to survive a crisis is hard. I think you, what you need to do is always look at what the needs are going to be going forward. I would look at your um, your competitors and not look at them as competitors. Look at them as colleagues and make sure that you talk to your to your colleagues to, because you all have the same problems. Uh, and so make sure you're talking to, to other people in the industry to try and further your knowledge. But you have to make sure that you um, keep growing as an individual. I said it earlier on, every day is a school day. You know, so embrace change. Don't, you know, and then try to influence. And that's the other thing. Use Use your voice to influence um, the care sector. Um, do not be frightened to, to let your voice be heard. It doesn't have to be confrontational. Um, try and have a partnership working or a mutual respect for, for, for everybody within the sector to try and improve. And I think that's the thing. Try and improve all the time. Absolutely. Tony Banks, thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. Tony's message to communicate with your colleagues and use your voice for the greater good is so powerful. And in times of crisis like this, we need people like Tony to stand up for the care sector more than ever. Thanks a lot, Tony, for joining me on the podcast this week. And thank you all for listening. On next week's episode of Tea with Toby, we get first-hand accounts of life on the front line. When I speak to carers Zuva Chinori and Jijo Johnny, I ask Zuva what life was like as a living carer during the pandemic. Jijo explains the importance of family visits during lockdown. And I ask both what they really thought about the Clap for Carers initiative. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea with Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website, teawithtoby.com, where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea with Toby. Tea with Toby.